Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Caroline West, and I'm a GP and a medical advisor for NPS MedicineWise. In Australia, with winter well underway, we're currently heading into the next surge of COVID with around 350,000 current active cases. Now, they're official figures, of course, and the true number is estimated to be way, way higher. Omicron BA5 is now the predominant strain in Australia, and there are concerns that this variant in particular targets the lower respiratory system, a bit like Delta did. Obviously, preventing serious infection and hospitalizations are a key priority, and the use of oral COVID antivirals in vulnerable people could literally mean the difference between life and death for some. In a welcome move, as of July 2022, access to these oral COVID medications has been expanded. To take us through the latest changes, I'll be talking to two experts. First up on the show, I'll be chatting with Professor Sarah Hilmer, who's a geriatrician and a clinical pharmacologist at Royal North Shore Hospital and the University of Sydney. And she's also a member of the guideline leadership group of the COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. Then later in the show, I'll be talking with Associate Professor Charlotte Hespie, a GP and Chair of the New South Wales and ACT RACGP, for her perspectives on general practice with what's happening out there, what's happening with expanded access. There have been no conflicts of interest declared. So first up, I'd like to welcome Sarah to the show. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks for being with us. So can I start by asking you, Sarah, I know we talked to you back in February, a lot has changed since then, but where are we at in terms of managing COVID? Well, Caroline, I think where we're at is that we have a very highly vaccinated population and we also have a lot of therapies that are actually highly effective for early disease as well as the therapies that are available if someone does get sick and wind up in hospital. And I guess it's interesting to see that access has now been expanded for vulnerable groups. What are the changes to start off with that that health professionals need to know about? Thanks, Caroline. So the access for the two oral antivirals that are available in the community for people who are within their first five days of of uh, COVID-19 symptoms has expanded. And those two drugs are Nermatrovir plus Ritonavir or Paxlovid and uh, Monupiravir or Lagevrio. Now, the first big change is that there's no longer a requirement to have less than two doses of the vaccine. And this is partly because almost everybody has at least one dose of the vaccine in our community. And it's also because it's been shown that addition of the antivirals to people, to vaccination, does give additional benefit. So the antivirals are now available to all people aged over 70, to people aged over 50 with at least two risk factors for severe disease, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aged over 30 who have two or more risk factors for disease, and to people with um, what we call immunocompromising conditions who are aged 18 and over. And I guess the, the big question is why has this access actually been expanded? What's the thinking there? Look, as I, as I mentioned, there is a additional benefit from using the um, the antivirals on top of on top of vaccination, and I guess initially when we had the antivirals, we uh, 
We had one randomized control trial for each sponsored by the drug company. Um, now we have some real world data that suggests that they do actually work almost as well as, as we thought they would. And I guess the it, it's other things that have changed are that uh, we have plenty of drug supply at the moment. So we can use them more widely, not just on the absolutely highest risk people, but on the second tier of people at, also at high risk. It's become clearer who really is at high risk from the real world data. And I guess the final point is that our hospitals are really full at the moment and anything that works even a little bit is uh, to keep people out of hospital is uh, is considered beneficial. And, and so you mentioned there that you've got real world data on both of these medications that are available for use in Australia. What are the actual numbers looking like? Like what could a health professional talk to their patients about in terms of this is the advantage to you in taking this medication in terms of keeping you out of hospital, preventing serious illness? Yeah, look, I think it's worth just starting with a caveat. This is real-world data that's not from Australia. It's from Hong Kong. It's from Israel. It's from the US. And these are large population studies where people have looked at routine healthcare data in thousands of people and seen what has happened in the first part of this year when the Omicron uh, variants have been circulating. And um, I should also preface the fact that a lot of this comes from preprints, so it's not peer-reviewed data. But the numbers look pretty consistent and look pretty good. Um, if you look at the data from Hong Kong, where they looked at people who were in hospitals, I think they put pretty much everyone in hospital, but with mild disease, they found that uh, you could reduce death, invasive mechanical ventilation and ICU as a combined endpoint by about 50% with molnupiravir and by about 75% with Paxlovid. Um, if you looked in Israel, when they, where they only had Paxlovid, they looked at people in the community with early disease and amongst people aged over 65, they could reduce hospitalisation by about 75% and death by about 80%. Interestingly, when they looked at people who were 40 to 65, they didn't see a significant impact of the Paxlovid. And if you look at the US where um, they looked at people aged 50 and over with about a third age over 65, they could, using Paxlovid, they could reduce hospitalisation by about 50%. So it looks like in real-world settings, these drugs do work, and they seem to work better in people who are at higher risk of progression to severe disease. That's very convincing in terms of being an argument for considering these medications in, in vulnerable people. The other thing that, that caught my attention was I think you mentioned that people in that 40 to 65 group didn't really see benefit from these oral COVID medications, anti-COVID medications. And that's useful to know too, because I get asked, well, I'm 50 years old, I don't have any other risk factors, but why can't I get this drug as well? Yeah, I think, I think the answer is that uh, based on the evidence we have, it doesn't look like it would help you your risk of going to winding up in hospital is so low that this is unlikely to make a difference. And it's also important to note that the absolute risk of going to hospital amongst people who take Paxlovid is, um, is less than 1%. This is not a, we're not talking about a big absolute risk, but for an individual who's high risk, that risk reduction is really important. And on a population level, that risk reduction is really important. What other sorts of things do health professionals need to consider when they're managing people at home in the community with their COVID? Where do they draw the line with, with what other options could be considered apart from these medications? 
Look, I think it's really important that GPs recognise that these two oral medications are an excellent start, but there are some patients who might actually need other options and there are other options available through your local health districts, through the hospitals. And I guess the big group that we see are people who have early mild disease are at extremely high risk of progressing to severe disease and um, and are not able to take um, Paxlovid because of either terrible renal function or critical um, drug interactions. And the main group that, the groups there really are the people with, uh, with terrible um, renal disease who are taking immunosuppressants and some people with uh, hematological conditions. And it's worth bearing in mind that those people might be able to get um, intravenous remdesivir through the hospitals, which seems to have similar efficacy to, um, to Paxlovid. Now, it's not easy to organise. You've got to go into hospital for an intravenous infusion for three days in a row. But at the same time, if you've got someone who really is very high risk, who you can't give Paxlovid to and you think they need something more potent than molnupiravir, it is an option and you should talk to um, to the person's treating specialist and the local health district. That, that's good advice. And I'd like you to just pop your clinical pharmacology hat on for a minute, Sarah, and could you take us through some of the interactions, particularly with Paxlovid. So I guess that GPs often will pull up the interaction list and go, oh, good grief, there are just so many things on this list. Surely it's too high risk for me to prescribe this medication because I'll just be creating more trouble. You talked about this back in February. Can you recap what your main messages are there to give us a bit of confidence with our prescribing? Thanks, Caroline. I think uh, there are two main groups of interactions to think about there are the interactions which occur because the person is already on a CYP3A4 inducer and there are the interactions that occur because the um, ritonavir blocks the CYP3A4. Let's talk about the inducers first. So if someone is on a drug that induces CYP3A4, that will mean that they've made more enzyme takes a couple of weeks to make that enzyme, but then it also takes a couple of weeks for that enzyme to um, to break down. And the common drugs that would induce the CYP3A4 would be a lot of the anti-epileptics, as well as um, St. John's wort, which a lot of people are on over the counter and may not tell you about. Now, if someone is on an inducer, then they really should not get Paxlovid because the Paxlovid won't work. The CYP3A4 will be so ramped up and that extra enzyme will take so long to, uh, to break down that they'll never get an adequate level of the, um, nematrovir in their blood and the Paxlovid won't be effective. So if someone's on an inducer, Paxlovid is not a, not a good option. It won't work. However, if someone is on a drug that is metabolized by CYP3A4 and you are going to give them the, uh, Paxlovid, which includes the ritonavir that blocks CYP3A4, you might be worried about the fact that they will then wind up with very high levels of their CYP3A4 substrates. Now, that is an issue, but it's an issue that's quite manageable because a lot of the time the drugs that people are on that are metabolised by CYP3A4 could just be dose-reduced or withheld for the five days that they're taking the um, Paxlovid. And there's really detailed advice on the TGA product information and also on the Liverpool Drug Interaction Checker that we talked about last time that takes you through those processes. 
So just because someone is on a drug that's a substrate for CYP3A4, even if it's a drug with an aerotherapeutic index, you don't need to panic. You don't need to think, ah, oh, they can't take Paxlovid. You just need to see what the management strategy is. And a lot of the time, it's simply a matter of withholding or dose reducing that interacting drug. So given that expanded access now includes people in younger age groups, what is the story in terms of thinking about side effects? I know that these medications can't be used in pregnancy or with breastfeeding. What else do we need to think about? As younger people use these, we need to think not only about pregnancy and breastfeeding, but also about um, about conception. And with both the uh, Paxlovid and the Molnupiravir, you should use contraceptives while you're taking the medication and for, I think, four or five days afterwards. However, the Molnupiravir is unusual and has unusual implications for male conception. I mentioned last time that uh, monupiravir works by inducing fatal mutations in the virus. It can also induce mutations in sperm, and sperm take two or three months to develop. So that means that men need to have strict contraception methods or not conceive for three months after they finish taking the monupiravir. I'll be talking later in the show to um, Charlotte Hespy, who's a GP, and it will be interesting to get her perspective on planning because what I'm hearing is that these conversations do take some time. It's a matter of going through somebody's medication list. Is there an opportunity in advance for GPs and other medical professionals to be looking at the medication chart now, seeing what's relevant, what could perhaps be deleted from the medication chart? It's no longer necessary. What are your thoughts? I think that's a really good idea. Um, Firstly, a medication review is never a waste of time. You'll always find something that uh, either is no longer needed or actually something that's missing or something that could be optimised in terms of dose or formulation. And I think being prepared for this is, is really important. At the moment when someone finds out that they have COVID, they're feeling sick, they're feeling worried, um, they need an immediate consultation. You have to squeeze them in for a teleconsultation. It's not the time to go through a, a detailed list. Having a detailed medication list, going through those medications, thinking about what the COVID plan is, as well as thinking about how else you can optimise the medication list, it would be a really worthwhile consultation. Yeah, I like that. Thinking of a COVID plan, it's it's a bit like the fire drill or, or talking to somebody if they've got heart disease and what happens if they get chest pain. These are the steps you need to take. And I think that that's a really important message about being proactive. And also, I guess, those that don't have a GP, being aware of um, whether they fit into the to the groups that actually can get access to these medications and set about to find a health professional who can have that consultation with them to see whether they uh, one of these medications would be useful. Agreed. And I think that can be really empowering because I think pe- a lot of people with chronic disease who consider themselves, or older people who consider themselves high risk, are very worried. And ha- having a plan, knowing exactly you know, who to call, what to do, and what's going to happen when the time comes, because unfortunately most of us aren't going to get COVID at some stage, um, is actually very empowering. Fantastic. Well, that's a nice positive note to finish on, Sarah. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on the podcast and all of your expertise. I've been talking with Professor Sarah Hilmer, who's a geriatrician and clinical pharmacologist, 
And next up on the show, I'd like to welcome back Associate Professor Charlotte Hespy, who's a GP and Chair of the New South Wales ACT RACGP. I'm keen to get her perspective on what it's currently like out there in general practice with COVID and access to oral antivirals. But thanks once again, Sarah, for being with us. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon because COVID just keeps keeping us on our toes. So it's very helpful to get this update on the expanded access of oral antivirals. Thank you. My pleasure. Now for the second part of our podcast on the oral antivirals for COVID, Associate Professor Charlotte Hespy is joining us. Now you may remember Charlotte because she joined us earlier in the year, back in February, I believe, when these medications were first provisionally approved in Australia. Things have changed a lot since then. Associate Professor Charlotte Hespy is a practising GP. She's the Head of General Practice at Notre Dame and Chair of the New South Wales ACT Faculty of the RSCGP. Thanks so much for joining us, Charlotte. Pleasure, Caroline. So a lot has changed with COVID. I guess a lot of people out there are hoping that it's all going to go away, but with Omicron, BA 4 and 5, we've certainly been kept on our toes. What's it like from your perspective out there in general practice at the moment? Oh, there's definitely um, a sense of everybody is over it and a fear of what the future holds if we're still like this two and a half years down the track from when the pandemic started. So, yes, I think we're all fatigued, a bit burnt out um, and really wish that COVID had never come out of where it originated from. (laughs) Yes, I I certainly echo that sentiment. I think we're all feeling that. I I guess, though, now more than ever with this third wave on its way, with winter upon us, COVID surging, it's never been more important to actually stay focused and actually explore the options for vulnerable groups of the expanded access for oral COVID medications. Absolutely. What does this news mean for you and your practice? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think that what's really important is remembering that the primary foundations of protection remain the same. So we need to continue to push vaccination. Um, We need to really push boosters, that two vaccines is absolutely not enough, that people need to have three and then their fourth if they qualify for a fourth. And again, that's been expanded, which is fantastic. And um, I'll sing it from the top of all of the buildings around me that the vaccine is the most important thing to do and the most protective. Then obviously we also need to do all of our protection about ourselves, which is about masks and hand washing and being appropriately um, isolated when we have symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection. Um, Again, people are a bit over masks, but um, fortunately, unfortunately, they actually work and we need to continue to use them and model it, particularly in the setting of general practice where, like hospitals, we need to protect both ourselves as the workers and, more importantly, in terms of vulnerability, those patients who might be needing to be seen face-to-face in our general practice setting. Now, how can general practice actually prepare for the increased need for prescribing of these medications? Great question. I think the biggest thing we can do is actually sit down and think about who those patients might be, what they look like, and try to have some of those conversations more proactively. So how many patients do you have over 70 and therefore will automatically qualify to get a Um, a prescription if they get COVID and how do we manage that as a practice in terms of communicating that to them, 
helping them have an increased health literacy around the need to be both rapidly diagnosed if they get a respiratory tract infection to whether it is COVID and therefore whether they need to be able to add the extra benefit of the antivirals and what um, that might mean in terms of what other medications they have, what to do after hours, et cetera. So know your number in the first place. Then basically, again, thinking about how you might do it is you might send out an email and say to everybody in that group and say, this is what it means um, and we would like you to come in and have a conversation about your choices because there are two. We know that's Paxlovid or versus um, Molnupiravir and it's really important that Paxlovid is actually considered as the the first and the best option for everybody. And so you need to have a conversation, is that the right option for um, for, for me as a patient um, or do I actually have medications that absolutely contraindicate me taking it or do I have renal function um, that means that I'm at risk? If that's the case, then I need to have a conversation about molnupiravir. But most, you know, a lar- much larger number of patients actually qualify for um, Paxlovid than I think some people thought. They thought it was a bit too hard. But once you get used to looking and doing a checking about what medicines you can and can't prescribe with it, and a lot of them you can just defer. So, for instance, some um, statins, the you, you can very easily ask somebody to stop taking a statin for five days. And it's much easier when somebody's not sick to actually have that conversation and maybe have a printout ready to to go um, that actually gives them that information. Um, And you may choose to put the prescription already there ready to go too. Um, I've been doing that for the conversations I've been having um, because certainly had a lot of people this week coming and saying, okay, so what happens if I get COVID? Um, Which medicine and how do I get it? So we've gone through, we've chosen the right one for them. I put the script there ready so that if I'm not in the, the surgery, somebody else can easily see what that patient is ready and raring to use and that they've actually already been educated about how to do it. What about the scenario where a person is in a vulnerable risk group, so they're eligible, but they don't have a regular GP and it's a Saturday morning? What are your thoughts on how they could access a script and a conversation? Um, Okay, so again, it's about, you know, how do we educate the general public out there about, A, the importance of having a regular GP? Um, I think I've been you know, well known for standing there waving my big flag of how important and um, it is for healthcare for people to have their own GP. And that doesn't just need to be your own GP, but but pretty much the general practice that you go to for everything. Um, If you don't have one, then you know, now's a good time to do a bit of that planning. Um, I, GPs are really hard to access at the moment. So it may be good to actually think, well, where have I been in the last um, two years? Which place do I think is good? And um, and being able to select them, find out what their access is. So again, it's called being prepared um, rather than waiting to get the infection. If, however, you aren't prepared and it is Saturday afternoon um, that you get that sort of diagnosis. There are obviously um, easy to access general practices around the place, well, easier and or, um, you know, sort of acute care setting places, which hopefully um, 
people can either access or if there's not that long a time frame and you've only just started getting symptoms, then maybe you're going to have to wait till you can actually get into a practice on a Monday. There's five days um, from when symptoms arise to starting the medication for it to, to be effective. We know it's better the sooner it's gotten, but if it actually, if, if somebody's sick, can't go searching for a general practice, it may be more appropriate to actually find a place that can see you on the Monday by telehealth um, rather than, you know, making it worse for everybody trying to find that place in the next day and a half. How are you actually talking to people about what value there is with the oral antivirals? In terms of the benefit for antivirals? Yeah. I suppose what I'm, you know, having that conversation is that we are seeing an increased number of people needing to go into hospital and ending up in intensive care beds. Uh, we know that the biggest risk factor for that is actually age. So being um, aged in the, the sort of the 70s means that you are much higher risk of that happening. And similar to me encouraging everybody to go off and have a vaccine, I know that if we give you some medication, then the likelihood of you getting that much sicker is decreased again. It, you know, it's it's not nearly as big a benefit as through the vaccine, but there is definitely a, a benefit to be had. Yes, and, I mean, the numbers are quite staggering. I know when we talked, it's only a matter of months ago, the numbers were way lower. I think the official number's up to 8.5 million Australians have officially had COVID now. The number's obviously way higher than that. But it's quite extraordinary how many people have now been infected by this virus and will probably be repeatedly infected with this virus. Absolutely. And so it's really great to know that we've sort of got this, sort of feel like it's that backup buffer thing of, yes, I know I'm protected with the vaccine. I didn't want to get the virus. I've got it. Let's then just add that bit of extra insurance policy to keeping me out of hospital and in particular, keeping me out of an intensive care unit. Yeah. And I know it's been a really tough time for everybody in the community, but clinicians in particular, you mentioned at the beginning, are, are really feeling it because there are a lot of demands on your time. Um, how are you pacing yourself at the moment, Charlotte? Well, it's like anything, isn't it, Caroline? We can only do what we can do and there's no point in getting overly anxious. Planned care is better than reactive care. So think about the things that keep you well and healthy. If, you know, for me, it's about keeping up my exercise pattern, making sure I keep running, that I make sure that I've got enough time in the day to have a bit of a debriefing and family time, etc. So I think everybody needs to remember that, that you can never be responsible for everybody. Um, and so you just have to do what you can do. But systems really help. Um, I'm a great advocate for systems of care. And that means that it's not just my responsibility, it's my whole practice. So we we as a whole are sending out these emails to our patients. They love it, can I say. They love getting something from us um, and they love it because we're doing it in, in language that lets them know both what is the sort of the current scenario and how we as a practice are going to help them navigate these times and what they need to do. And we sort of put it often in quite explicit steps about, you know, just these are the things you need to do. If it's out of hours, this is what we recommend you do, etc. So 
and a couple of not too many emails but just enough so you make sure that people have seen them same thing make sure our reception staff are okay because they're in the firing line they get the anger and the frustration of people when they can't get easy access to to care um and how do we make sure that they've got a backup you know where do they put the patient when they don't know what to do um and that we've always got um somebody who's who's behind them to help them um when they're feeling frazzled yes very very wise advice. So thank you so much, Charlotte, to, to you and all the other GPs around Australia and the, the frontline workers, including, as you say, reception staff, nursing staff. There are so many layers to providing um, wonderful care. So um, much, much appreciated. And thanks so much for your time too. I know that things have changed. They're going to continue to shift and keep us uh, surprised and on our toes, I think. We continue on that roller coaster ride, Caroline. We do continue on the roller coaster ride, so I'm sure we'll, we'll um, touch base again into the future. But thanks for those really practical tips, particularly around planning. That really resonated for me, that idea of getting prepared, contacting your patients with clear lines of communication so that when and if they do become unwell, that they know um, what to do. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for being with us on the show today. It's been fantastic to get your insights. And what I've heard again and again is this this importance of planning for COVID, talking with our patients early on in the piece before they have COVID to really get a sense of what they're currently taking, what would be an appropriate choice of medication if they're indeed in a vulnerable group. And of course, with expanded access, we'll need to be having more of those conversations to give people the best chance of reducing rates of hospitalisation and serious infection. And thank you too to Professor Sarah Hilmer, who joined us earlier in the show for her perspectives as a geriatrician and a clinical pharmacologist. It's great to really get a sense of where we're going with this because so much is changing since I talked to both of our guests earlier in the year. Now, if anybody would like to get access to CPD points for this podcast, then please go to our website. And of course, NPS Medicine Wise also has a terrific range of resources to help you understand what the changes are, to give you prompts to discuss with your patients, go to our website and look at our resources under consumers and health professionals. Once again, thank you for being with us on this podcast today. I'm Caroline West. Bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.